If you're enjoying this Med Prep to Go Step 1 podcast, you can now get the content along with the content of the Crush Step 1 podcast ad-free in one bundle. Just go to medpreptogo.com and find our new subscription podcast called Med Prep to Go Step 1 Bundle. I'm Dr. Raj, and this is the Med Prep to Go podcast. So I'm going to be reviewing three USMLE Step One questions. And you know what? The uh, topic for tonight is going to be pathology. So for more questions, you know, check out our website, which is going to be medpreptogo.com. It's a free audio and online question bank. And to learn more about me. Uh, why don't you check out my own podcast? It's called Beyond the Pearls, which is the name of my book series published by Elsevier. There's going to be the morning report, Beyond the Pearls, which is for clinical medicine, steps two and three. And my case reports, Beyond the Pearls, which is going to be the basic science geared to step one. Definitely check me out on social media. You name it. I'm all over that. And I think that's about it. So let's get to those uh, questions. For pathology, the first one's going to be a 17-year-old girl presents to the clinic with a complaint of difficulty swallowing food for the past two weeks. So what is that called? Dysphagia. And you know me, I'm always dropping pearls everywhere. When we talk about dysphagia, there are two main types. There's going to be transport dysphagia and transfer dysphagia. Transfer dysphagia is the act of moving the food from the mouth to the back of the mouth. You know what I'm saying? While when we talk about, you know, transport dysphagia is taking the food going down the esophagus all the way to the stomach. And it's been going on for two weeks, so not a long time, and she is on the younger side. So she describes occasional episodes where the food seems to get stuck in my throat. It's in quotes. This mostly occurs with solid foods and is sometimes associated with some vomiting and abdominal pain. So everyone, does age make a difference when you talk about dysphagia? Definitely. Because if you're going to be older and you have dysphagia, uh, what do I worry about? Of course, cancer, esophageal carcinoma, esophageal squamous cell, esophageal adenocarcinoma. So, But this is a 17-year-old who's had it for two weeks, so it's not going to be that, I hope. (laughs) And um, she does not experience any urticaria or dyspnea with these episodes. She denies any heartburn or hematemesis or weight loss. You know what I mean? And of course, weight loss, you always think about esophageal carcinoma, but you know what else can give you dysphagia and give you weight loss? Achalasia. So that's just me dropping pearls. And she has no history of psychiatric illness. Her past medical history includes asthma and allergies to nuts and shellfish. So does that kind of relate? to dysphagia, the fact that you seem to be allergic and all that stuff? Yeah, kind of. I'm not going to give away the answer, but it kind of does. She does not use alcohol or other drugs. So, of course, if you're drinking lots of alcohol, what type of esophageal cancer are you prone to? That's going to be something like squamous cell. Squamous cell esophageal, think of smoking and drinking and drinking and smoking. Um, Her meds include albuterol. She has asthma. And she's on oral contraceptive and epinephrine injectors. So maybe she had an episode of anaphylaxis in the past. I don't know. Physical exam is unremarkable. She's referred to a GI doctor who recommends an EGD, upper endoscopy. Which of the following findings most likely be found when they perform the endoscopy? Is it A, esophageal varices? Uh, 
That sounds like a hokey pokey answer. So if you're going to have esophageal varices, I mean, throw out the magic word. I mean, cirrhosis, right? <laughs> it's going to be someone who has portal hypertension. Of course, there are other causes of, of varices. But I'm going to think if you have varices, you think about what? Bleeding. Oh, man, variceal bleeds can be horrible. That's not this patient at 17, right? Esophageal webs can definitely give you dysphagia. Now, if I'm going to throw out some webs, you know what I'm saying? I mean, give me some iron deficiency anemia. And who could tell me if you have esophageal webs and iron deficiency anemia, what syndrome is that called? That's called Plummer Vincent syndrome. Also, sometimes people call it Patterson Kelly syndrome, but I love calling it Plummer Vincent. But, you know, I don't see anemia anywhere in here, and you really need to evaluate just to call the esophageal webs on the scope. I'm not feeling it. Intestinal metaplasia. Well, I mean, that seems to be odd with some of the things that she's talking about for the two-week episode of difficulty swallowing. I don't know why I would think about intestinal metaplasia. Well, she didn't even have weight loss. I take it back. So I'm not feeling that. Linear furrows. What are linear furrows? I guess you'll see that on the scope. What is that associated with? So I'm not going to cross it out or rule it out just yet. Punched out ulcers. So, I mean, I guess if you're going to have a lot of ulcers in there, you got to think of the magic words dyspepsia. And probably you could think about some of this when you have someone who has maybe odynophagia, pain on swallowing, but I don't know. So the right answer here is going to be D, linear furrows. So linear furrows, along with esophageal rings, are a classic finding in eosinophilic esophagitis. So that's going to be what this patient probably has. Why? Because of the history of asthma. She's atopic. There's allergies. And really, when you throw the scope in there, that's one of the classic, classic findings is going to be these linear furrows. And as mentioned, this is when you have eosinophilic esophagitis, you get the dysphagia, food impaction, and definitely that history of A to B. This patient has EOE, that's eosinophilic esophagitis, a disorder of eosinophilic infiltration of the esophageal mucosa. It's commonly found in patients with a history of ATP and can present with a wide variety of GI symptoms. It most commonly presents with dysphagia and food impaction on endoscopy. Esophageal rings can be noted. And, you know, rings and webs and webs and rings get are sometimes used interchangeably in a clinical sense. You know, obviously, a ring is going to be concentric involving all three layers of the mucosa, while a web will only most of the time partially occlude the esophagus. You know, webs tend to be more higher up in the esophagus, while rings tend to be more distal in the esophagus. Just throwing it out there. Rings and linear furrows are often found in the right clinical setting with eosinophilic esophagitis. So enter choice A, esophageal varices is incorrect, without a history of alcohol use or cirrhosis, there's no reason to suspect it. Varices are often asymptomatic until they rupture and you get painless hematemesis. Choice B, esophageal webs is incorrect, they often present with dysphagia from poorly chewed food uh, with iron deficiency anemia. Now, in a plumber vincent syndrome, look at me, I called it already. Uh, her history lacks the findings suggestive of anemia, making this answer less likely. All right. Intestinal metaplasia is incorrect. Would be extremely unlikely for a 17-year-old to have intestinal metaplasia, which is something you'd see with Barrett's esophagus. And um, who gets a Barrett's esophagus? Long-standing what? Long-standing GERDs and heartburn and that stuff. Okay. And choice E, punch-out ulcers is incorrect because they may be found in many infections such as herpes simplex virus 1 esophagitis 
And you would probably end up having something like odinophagia, pain on swallowing. This patient has no uh, history suggestive of HSV-1. So learning points, linear furrows alone with esophageal rings are classic findings in the right clinical setting for eosinophilic esophagitis. Think of a patient that presents with dysphagia, typically has a history of asthma and atopy. What about this one? A 52-year-old woman presents in a clinic complaining of abdominal pain for the past three months. She describes epigastric pain with a dull gnawing and burning, that's in quotes, and the quality that improves after eating. She has had success treating it with antacids and has recently noticed that they have become less effective, meaning the antacids. She denies any chest pain, reflux, cough, hoarseness, hematemesis, melanoma, or weight loss. She endorses uh, having some diarrhea. She has a history of rheumatoid arthritis. Her medications include methotrexate and some vitamin D. Um, she does not drink alcohol or smoke cigarettes. Which of the following is the most likely etiology of her condition? So is it A, antibodies against intrinsic factor? Now, that's not a bad answer because if you have a history of an autoimmune disease such as a rheumatoid arthritis, why not, you know, have a history of what? Pernicious anemia, getting those antibodies, you know, against those uh, parietal cells. Uh, but once again, you would have physical complaints of being B12 deficient. I mean, throw me a bone, why don't you? Give me some like, you know, neuropathy. Give me some ataxia, why don't you? Throw me out some anemia, you know? So I don't know. B, gastronoma. So, I mean, it's possible. I mean, gastronomas, you know, are associated with something called Zollinger-Ellison syndrome that can present with some, some diarrhea. I mean, there's no weight loss there, nothing to indicate a pancreatic mass, but all right. C, gram-negative bacillus, that's catalase positive. You know what they're kind of hinting at here is uh, they're probably hinting at maybe some H. pylori. That's not wrong to pick that. So gram-negative bacillus, that's catalase positive, urease positive, and oxidase negative. D, intestinal metaplasia, once again, um, does she have, you know, long-standing reflux? Uh, she's on antacids, I don't know. E, methotrexate, and I got to tell you, if you want to know what's my jam, I love talking about rheumatology. And methotrexate has a boatload of, you know, side effects you need to worry about, but not, you know, this epigastric, dull, gnawing, burning quality it does give you some nausea. And, you know, you have to slowly titrate up the drug. But I don't know. I really wouldn't think about this as the etiology. And the right answer is, ooh, B, gastronoma. So this patient's symptoms are most consistent with peptic ulcer disease, secondary to a duodenal ulcer. Uh, these duodenal ulcers typically present with epigastric gnawing pain that improves with meals. The most common etiology, of course, is H. pylori, though it may rarely be due to a gastronoma. Zollinger-Ellison syndrome is characterized by gastric acid hypersecretion, resulting in severe acid-related peptic disease and diarrhea. Gastronoma is a rare cause of duodenal ulcers, but must be considered in the evaluation of a duodenal ulcer. And of course, when we talk about PUD, it can happen in the stomach, it can happen in the duodenum. And of course, in the stomach, you do worry about, you know, the chance of it being cancer. You always want to biopsy and, you know, make sure you're not missing something like a multoma or that you may want to treat. Uh, choice A uh, is wrong. Antibodies against intrinsic factor is incorrect. Chronic autoimmune gastritis is an immune-mediated attack on the intrinsic factor. Its most common presentation is pernicious anemia. Wow, look at Dr. Raj just calling it. 
Choice C, gram-negative bacillus, that is catalase positive, urea is positive, and oxidase negative is incorrect. H. pylori is the most common cause of one ulcers. However, it is a gram-negative rod that's catalase positive, urease, oxidase is positive for catalase, urease, and oxidase, making C incorrect. So, wow, that was a little tricky one. You even got me on it. I thought they were totally thinking about H. pylori here and wondering why didn't they pick H. pylori. So the answer is wrong because H. pylori is positive, once again, for catalase, urease, and oxidase. Okay. D, intestinal metaplasia, is incorrect. Intestinal metaplasia in the stomach is indicative of an intestinal-type gastric carcinoma without weight loss, systemic symptoms, no mention of risk factors such as H. pylori or type A blood. This answer is less likely. Methotrexate choice C is also wrong. Methotrexate can have GI side effects, like I mentioned, some nausea, maybe some loose stools, but not associated with PUD. And the learning point is duodenal ulcers typically present with epigastric gnawing pain that improves with meals and classically are painful two to five hours after a meal when acid is secreted in the absence of food for a buffer. The most common cause of a PUD definitely is going to be H. pylori, but you definitely want to think of non steroidals. More rarely, gastrinomas. Gastric ulcers typically worsen with eating and can be accompanied by postprandial belching, a sensation of epigastric fullness, early satiety, uh, food intolerance, and sometimes vomiting. And our last one for today's podcast is a previously healthy four year old boy with Down syndrome. It was brought to the physician by his mother because of foul smelling discharge from the right nostril. For the past two weeks, in this period, his mother has noticed the patient has had loud breathing while inhaling, which is not present before. His temperature is 98.6 Fahrenheit. Heart rate is 90. Respirations are 22. Blood pressure is low at 90 over 60. Physical exam shows malodorous gray discharge in the right nasal cavity. Uh, endoscopic examination of the nose confirms a diagnosis, which of the following is the most likely diagnosis. Is this going to be allergic rhinitis? Hmm. I don't know why it would just happen for two weeks and why is it foul smelling? I'm not feeling it. Foreign body, you know, when you're it's a four-year-old kid, you know, trust me, you'd be amazed what ends up in people's noses. Dr. Raj, while making this podcast, has a three-year-old girl. Her name is Sadie, and oh my God, she is so cute. But I'm not joking. I, I, we found things up that nose. So I'm going to go with B without even reading the other choices. Don't do that on the regular exam. C, juvenile nasopharyngeal angiofibroma. Ooh, that's, I guess, but malodorous discharge, shortened time. It could be. I hope it's not, but I'm still going with B. D, nasal hematoma. Really not talking a lot about blood, but who knows? It's all about what the scope shows. And E, nasopharyngeal carcinoma. You know, another type of tumor. Why would it appear in two weeks? I'm going with B. Let's see what the right answer is. The correct answer is B, foreign body. Uh, foreign body inserted into the nose can become lodged high nasal cavity or par paranasal sinuses. This is a common cause of acute and chronic nasal symptoms in young kids, especially when the symptoms are unilateral. Foreign nasal bodies often present in a child as rhinorrhea and progress to infection with purulent malodorous discharge. These symptoms are isolated to the side of the foreign body unlike sinusitis and upper respiratory tract infections, which can present with similar symptoms bilaterally. 
Diagnosis is made by direct visualization and treatment consists of foreign body removal. Choice A, allergic rhinitis is incorrect. Allergic rhinitis presents with sneezing and bilateral rhinorrhea, nasal obstruction, and is often accompanied by itching of the eyes, post-nasal drip, uh, giving a cough. Choice C, juvenile nasal pharyngeal angiofibroma is incorrect. It is a highly vascular but benign tumor that occurs primarily in adolescent males. So this kid's really young. Um, that can cause epistaxis as well as problems as a result of local invasion of adjacent structures. Choice D, nasal hematoma, is also incorrect. A nasal or septal hematoma may result from trauma to the nasal septum. Blood collects in the space between the nasal cartilage and the overlying mucopericondrium and can obstruct blood flow to the nasal cartilage, potentially resulting in a vascular necrosis of the nasal cartilage. And last but not least, choice E, nasal pharyngeal carcinoma is incorrect. Though nasal pharyngeal carcinoma is the predominant tumor arising in the nasal pharynx, it is rare in the United States and has a peak incidence of around people ages 50 to 59. So not really in the four-year-old kid. So the learning point is foreign body in the nasal cavity is a frequent cause of unexplained unilateral nasal symptoms in young children, just like Dr. Raj's daughter. <laughs> but anyways, I hope you enjoyed the three questions today. They are all high yield for the USMLE step one. And be sure to check out our website, which is medprop2go.com. See you again for more questions.